This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello there. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or advance their career in ag tech or agribusiness, I sure love to hear from you or them. Tim at aggrad.com is my email address. We have discussed microbial solutions to agricultural problems on this show before, all the way from Pam Marone to David Perry uh, to several of the episodes from the Stories from the Soil series with Cool Planet, and it has come up quite often. I, I think there is no disputing the fact that it's a hot topic right now of how do we promote the right type of microbial interactions between plants and soil and water, etc. How do we promote this? Uh, their impact and what impact they will eventually have on the future of agriculture is also part of the discussion. You'll hear people on the spectrum from uh, they are going to displace 90% of chemical agriculture all the way to it's a bunch of snake oil and they don't work at all. Well, we have a perspective on the show here today from Dr. Paul Zorner. Dr. Zorner is the CEO of Locus Agricultural Solutions. And one of the interesting things about what Locus Ag is doing is they uh, have taken this idea that in order for microbial solutions to be effective, the microbes have to be delivered to the farm in their optimal state. So like alive and thriving and ready to go. And in order to do this, it's very, very difficult to do it from one singular production plant in the middle of the country and ship it all over because, uh, frankly, the microbes die or they change whatever state they're in by the time they get there. So what Locus Ag is doing is building local modular climate controlled fermentation hubs. We call them microbreweries in the in the interview so that the microbes can be produced close to where they're going to be used so that when they arrive at the farmer, they are in a state where they can be most effective. So Everything from improving soil health to improving uh, crop efficiency to fighting pests and diseases, whatever microbial uh, solution you're using these for, they're going to be in sort of an optimized state. So uh, Dr. Zorner has some really, really interesting information to share with us. He obviously knows his stuff, especially when it comes to the science, but he's able to articulate it in a way using analogies that even somebody like myself can understand. So I think you're going to enjoy this and certainly enjoy the concept of uh, trying to deliver microbes in their optimal state in order for agricultural production and solving those problems. So Dr. Zorner is going to start off by telling us what is Locus Ag? Yeah, you know, we we live in a world whose functional chemistry is is dictated by microbes, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more as we as we have this discussion. Uh, we've known that for for years, uh, decades. Uh, we've never really been able to to capitalize on it in terms of creating reliable products. You know, agricultural microbes are generally looked at as inconsistent at best and snake oil at worst, and you know it's plagued the industry. Um, and so we took a look, and there are many, many fine companies. So we're very proud to be part of this community of innovation, trying to create agricultural microbes as a, as a more reliable part of an integrated you know, agricultural system. 
but we we felt that one of the biggest problems is the, these are live organisms. We we kind of refer to them as probiotics because they have, especially soil amendments, have a very similar role. Uh, you know, the the, the soil microbiome, uh, the root microbiome, is just important to that plant in terms of its nutritive status and its health as a human microbiome is to us. But being live and being probiotics, they generally don't do well when you put them through a conventional agricultural distribution system. Um, you know, nine to 12 months sitting on hot loading docks in consistent temperatures and, and inventory. And by the time they get to where they're going, they're just not as potent as, as, as they had in, you know, were, were initially. Therefore, they act inconsistently. And so we have worked to address the problem. We have created what I, what I like to call a you know, a platform that is very similar to a microbrewery for agriculture. Uh, we are building small modular facilities that are very, very, uh, very potent in terms of uh, the, the organisms and the concentration and the density of the organisms that we can create in, in modular fermenters. And our growers get that product anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, at most a couple of months, from when it's been produced, and it's so concentrated that we can actually afford to ship it around if we need to uh, in an Amazon Fresh type Yeti uh, cold chain. And so the 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 the, the organisms that we use, uh, we don't necessarily go out and try to look for new ones. We're using ones that have been known for a long time that have proven efficacy of fresh material, uh, but are produced and delivered in such a way that they're absolutely at their freshest and have the best potential to to do the job we'd like them to do as they possibly can. And that's Locus. We're a, we're a micro microbrewery for agriculture company. Ah, a lot of cool stuff in there. I mean, you got microbrewery, you've got Amazon Fresh, you've got Yetis. I mean, yeah. you already got my attention here. Uh, talk yeah. to us from the, from the farmer standpoint. Uh, what, what types of problems are, are they looking to solve uh, with, with the products that you would deliver to them? Uh, growers have all kinds of problems, right? It depends on where you are. Are you growing? Uh, are you are you growing wine grapes in Oregon? Uh, almonds in California? Citrus in Florida? You know, we we happen to choose Florida as to kickstart our company. Uh, they have a problem there called citrus greening, decimated the Florida citrus crop, seventy percent less productivity, and you know than it was fifteen years ago. Um, but many people have certainly issues associated with with wanting a healthy microbial soil, and we'll come back to that. But they also have problems with diseases and, and insects. And what we've started with is a, is a soil amendment that'll help ecologically rebalance the soils. We can talk about that. But we also have a portfolio of products that, that uh, uh, are biopesticides to control diseases or, or insects. Uh, and they're all produced with this modular uh, platform. Because the other part of that modular platform in terms of benefits is not only does it deliver materials that are, that are fresh and remarkably dense and viable, but because it's local and because it's modular, we can mix and match what we need. I always have thought it's, been a, it's a little naive to think that you can, you can produce a cocktail of organisms, which is normally what happens at a remote facility, say like Fermic in Mexico City, at, you know, thousands of miles away from you want to use it. Uh, get it there, even if you could get it there fresh, but expect it to work the same on almonds in California as it does on citrus in, in Florida. They're different crops, different soil types, different temperatures. They're all going to have different things. So with our modular system, 
we can mix and match in order to locally optimize or locally tune our product mix to what the grower needs. I, when I talk about it to, to, to growers or to the general public, it's kind of like Baskin and Robbins, right? You're, someday you want vanilla and, and uh, strawberry. Other days you want chocolate and pistachio. Uh, and, and so we, we feel we're going to be able to work with the grower and, and he'll have other tools available, but, but give him additional tools in his portfolio to address soil amendment, nutritive stash to the soil, or a particular disease, a particular insect, uh, but all using these microbial uh, products that, that are delivered to them in the way that we just got through talking about. And these microbial products that you're delivering, these are these are microbes that, that Locus has identified as, as effective in, in, let's say, let's take this example of citrus greening. Um, and, uh, and or, or is it you all are providing delivery mechanism for other companies that have developed the microbes? Oh, it's us. We have identified them. And to give you a specific example, we have a product called Rhizolizer, Rhizosphere Fertilizer. It's a soil amendment. We have it registered in 33 states. Uh, it's OMRI certified and California OIM certified. And so we just launched the product about a year ago. It's a combination of a beneficial fungus called Trichoderma hartzianum and a beneficial bacteria called Bacillus amyloliquefaciens. Uh, they actually interact together. There's actually a term called uh, fungophilic bacteria. In other words, bacteria that love to interact with a fungi. These are very social creatures. Uh, they need to they need to combine and you know create, you know, their 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 metabolic functions uh, uh complement each other. Uh it's kind of like a lichen, you know, a lichen is a combination of a of a of an algae and a fungi and interacts with the plant. So it's a similar concept to that. But those two organisms have been known for 40 years. They've been used by lots of people, not necessarily always in that combination, nor these particular strains in that combination. But they've, they've worked very well, and what we're working to do is to, to impact the, the soil microbiome in a way that, that nutrients are more available to the plant. But what we believe also is happening with not only the nutrients, you know, being made more available in soil, but there's a lot of metabolic interaction. You know, just like in our gut microbiome, our microbiome controls or produces metabolites that interact with our genome that dictate our, our immune health, dictate our mood. I mean, you can't pick up a paper today without learning about you know, how valuable your microbiome is to you. Well, plants are the same thing. And, and when, and obviously it's going to, you know, growing a strawberry is way different than growing an orange, but oh, generally speaking, when is this applied and how is it applied? Is it, is it a spray? No, uh, we need to get it down in the root system. So we have generally focused on high value horticultural crops, although we are doing some work in irrigated corn. We generally work in irrigated cropping systems because we put it in through drip or through microsprinklers or through overhead irrigation. And so it, it then gets you know, percolated down into, the, down into the root system of the plant because that's where it needs to be to do its job. And we also add, we also add some humic acid and, and fumic. Those are, those, are, those are microbial foods, if you will. Kind of the joke we tell is, you know, don't, don't send your microbes to work without a lunchbox. Hmm. Uh, and so things like kelp extract and humic acid, which are very natural parts of the environment, <clears throat> we put them down with the organism. So they have a little something to eat while they're getting themselves established in the plant. And of course, the plant takes over and we'll, we'll be feeding them as, as well. So it's a combination of our microbes and uh, a little bit of microbial food, if you will, uh, put out through any type of a system that will make sure it gets down quickly into the root system. And generally, you know, our customers are applying the product 
at planting or if an established planting, you know, and treating anywhere from once every three months to once a month. Because uh, we always try to, to, you know, regenerate the population because in any, any, any biological system, you, you know, we're feeding a lot of, of these organisms and then their population will grow and, and then they'll be, they'll be more balanced as, as, as uh, the other, other organisms and things begin to take hold as well. And so we restart the process and it, it has worked very well. You mentioned earlier uh, pesticides and, and, and uh, w- you know, obviously we spend quite a bit of money in agriculture trying to uh, get rid of biological acti- unwanted biological activity. W- with something like this, how do you make sure that you promote the right type of biological activity without promoting, you know, pests and diseases to thrive? Um, okay. There's, there's a concept called quorum sensing. Because uh, I think I think the question you're asking is well you're 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 introducing this this rather dense and potent population of organisms why why is it that you're not going to have any kind of detrimental effect on kind of the natural balance that's already out there and some people will will argue say look you already got a billion cells per gram of soil which you do uh, you're sprinkling fairy dust on the soil what you know, what what makes you think you're going to have an impact? Well, number one, we have an impact. We see the roots. We see the more beneficial plants. But there's also a concept called quorum sensing, uh, and the way to think about that is, you know, you go to a lot of parties and you're you're sitting around and you're looking at your watch, saying, "Wow, this is kind of dull. I need I need, I need to get out of here." And then somebody shows up with with uh, live music and you know bottle of wine, and man, things start to click. Well, that's quorum sensing. Uh, and that's, that's what happens when you take a probiotic with a beneficial organism or when we're applying our organisms. Uh, we think that, that our beneficial microbes are coming in and they're the DJ and they're, they're waking up a lot of these other organisms. You, can, you kind of think about it as that metagenomic environment. And what a metagenome is, is the concept that, like I mentioned before, that the the functional chemistry of any environment is dictated by microbes, but not any one or two microbes, but lots of them. Um, and if you go to a concert and the violins and the French horns aren't there, it's just not the same concert. But if they are, you know, it's, it's a much more deep and, and, and rich experience for everybody. Well, if you have a root microbiome that's missing certain functionalities or missing certain organisms or organisms that have that functionality, you put them in there, and all of a sudden, that concert is more rich and complete. The quorum sensing takes over, and everybody flourishes. So it's it's you're 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 taking things that are naturally present in the soil anyway, the trichoderma hartsianum and the bacillus amylocrophaceans you could find in any soil, but perhaps not there in the concentrations necessary to to impact the plant the plant in a meaningful way, enriching their population, which then enriches everybody else around them. As I said, these are social creatures, um, and um, thus far, you know, the, the data we have or the science in general that's been developed is that adding beneficial microbes to soils is the same as you taking a probiotic, which if you're not, you should be because it really influences your health in a meaningful way and enriches your natural gut microflora in a very beneficial way. I love all the, the party analogies. <laughs> um, yeah, right. No, that, that's great. I, I, I'm curious about uh, the data behind um, you know, your delivery process, it seems like part of your, your, uh, your model, your special sauce, if you will, is, is these microbreweries, these 
locally and regionally focused. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if manufacturers is the right word, but the ways to, to generate this uh, fungi and bacteria locally. It, what is the difference if you were to not do that, if you were to have it centrally located someplace in the middle of the country and just distribute out? And I don't know if, uh, if there's exact data on that, but kind of help us understand why that's so significant. Yeah, um, it's part of the business platform as well, but a microbrewery is an apt analogy. It's a fermentation center, and think of it like cell phone towers, that each one of these that we build would, would serve an area, you know, 100-mile radius, 150-mile radius around the, the fermentation center so that things can be delivered quickly and fresh and what have you. Although right now our, our first fermentation center is in Ohio, and we literally FedEx cold packs, you know, at, um, and it is so dense. Just to give you an example, um, one 30-ounce pack, so almost a quart of our material will treat 10 acres, or 24 gallons of our product treats 1,000 acres. Uh, other, other competitive, good products, uh, uh, you know, might take 250, 500, even 1,000 gallons to treat 1,000 acres. Uh, you would never be able to do what we do in terms of keeping it cold and, and, and shipping it to, to where, where you need it without breaking the bank. So that's one aspect of it that, that becomes very important. But with a central facility, and I've built several of these in my career, you know, typically what you want to do is you scale. You go from, okay, I, I, I studied this in a Petri dish, and you go to an Erlenmeyer flask, and then you go to a two-liter fermenter, and then you go to a 1,000-liter fermenter, then a 20,000-liter fermenter, then ultimately you end up at a 100,000-liter fermenter. And these facilities can cost tens of millions of dollars to build in long permitting times. and then great, you, you produce this material, and oftentimes people will actually produce a, a, a cocktail in one fermenter, trying to brew several organisms up at the same time. Well, we just don't feel that's the way to do that. Number one, it's hard to get quality control when you when you're bring one cocktail you know, in one fermentation vat. So that's the modular system we have. We brew these things up, and then we mix and match to make our cocktail from each of the each of the particular materials. It's that Baskin and Robbins analogy that I, that I told you about before. Uh, but the other aspect that is literally, uh, these things can sit around in a, in a distribution system for 12 months and, and you're just not going to have the potency. It'll lose potency over, over time. Uh, uh, they're alive, as I said. Or you can only use organisms that will form some type of seed, like a spore or a propagule, that would be called. And then people try to stabilize it. And organisms that aren't capable of doing that, like there's one called Pseudomonas chlorophyllus, uh, doesn't form a seed. Uh, it's a vegetative cell. You can't use it. And so all of a sudden you have players sitting on the bench. They have great skills, but they don't fit into the coach's scheme. And the coach's scheme is, okay, I brew this up at a central location. I ship it out. It lasts 12 months. And then I get to the grower. So I got to have something that, that will survive in that system or at least try to survive in that system. Well, with our system, we can take those players off the bench that have known to have wonderful efficacy uh, and put them in because all of a sudden that's not a limitation. We have eliminated the need for inventory and storage uh, through our system. And oh, by the way, we're also, you know, saving on all kinds of transport costs and energy associated with transport costs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the importance of that local fermentation center is modular control over quality control, absolutely fresh material, and the ability to mix and match in order to meet local needs. 
And and how how does that translate into into the economics of the grower? You you alluded to earlier. Sometimes the microbial uh, aspect of agriculture can get a a bad reputation as as snake oil, and I, I think part of that is because uh, it's less specific than than you know chemistry, where it's like you've got this problem and you're gonna take care of it with this solution. There's maybe more um, ancillary benefits to it, but but can you just give us a specific example of a grower who might use a product from Locus and how uh, that helps them economically? Yeah, well, typically, you know, the rule of thumb in agriculture, and this is applied my whole life, is that if I make you $3 or $4, you're telling, you know, turn around and give me a dollar, but you got to make money. And so growers are looking for impact and, you know, as an example, we we have trials in potatoes where you know, we see anywhere from a, from a 15% increase in yield to a 35% increase in yield. Uh, and we also increase the, the quality of the tuber in that we get many more U.S. number ones. Not only do you produce a few more tubers, but you also produce a greater percentage of those tubers as, as a larger, more valuable product. And those growers would easily, you know, our, our product is about $3 an ounce. And we generally apply three ounces per, 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 excuse me, $6 per ounce. And we generally apply about three ounces per acre. So our general, our general price to the grower is about 18 bucks. Although there are discounts for early orders and volume and a whole variety of things along those lines. And, and we discount our price when we first enter into a marketplace, uh, because there's an adoption curve as well. You know, growers, even though they might see good results in the first year of using it, and they might use it on 10% of their acres. Well, then they will go to 30 or 40% of their acres. And then finally, in the third or the fourth year, uh, they, they, they might adopt it because they really want to see what happens on their farm. Um, and so we're always striving to show them that, look, here's, here's what we're doing. Here's the utility of the product. Uh, and, and here's the return to you, either an increased yield or in some instances, uh, since we do increase uh, fertilizer efficiency, you might be able to get away with 10% or 20% less fertilizer. Well, that's a that's an input that they didn't pay for that they can then transfer over to our input. Uh, uh, but ultimately, they've got to see that three to one or four to one return, or it, it's not something that they're going to adapt. And the same thing would happen with the biopesticide. And like I said, what what we have done, we have gone out and we haven't looked to discover our own biopesticides. Gone out and I've actually licensed uh, some products from an institute in the Ukraine, of all places. They've been used commercially there for 10 years. Beautiful efficacy. I mean, I, I used to run the biopesticide discovery group for BSF in North America. And so I'm fairly, fairly knowledgeable about pesticides and pesticide efficacy. I've never seen anything with efficacy like this and in terms of disease control and some uh, uh, viral and some insect control as well. Um, and people always say, well, gosh, if this stuff is so good that's been commercially, why, why haven't we seen it in the U.S.? Well, it has no real shelf life, only about two months of shelf life. So it's never really gotten out of Eastern Europe. Well, we've eliminated shelf life as a concern. So therefore, we can, again, take that player off the bench, sitting on the bench in Ukraine, bring it to the U.S. and, and, and institute, you know, controls for certain diseases that are easily the equivalent of, of various chemical pesticides. And so there, all of a sudden, now you've got, you've, even if you want to continue to use certain chemical pesticides, a lot of people don't want that, organic growers, and a lot of consumers just don't want any, any pesticide residues on their food. But as an integrated pest management tool, so you can switch between modes of action, 
uh, and you, you, you kind of stop this, this proliferation of pesticide-resistant diseases and insects that we're seeing right now, becomes a very powerful tool in that regard. So many, many benefits to the grower, not only in terms of, okay, I get my three-to-one or four-to-one return, but I also have a tool where I can help manage pest resistance. And I also have a tool because they're biologicals that the, 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 the worker reentry and the harvest intervals are much more relaxed because these are much, much more beneficial and, and, and lower toxicology profiles. Uh, and so therefore the, the standards associated with worker exposure are, are, are less, less regulated as well. So it gives them a lot of management options also, as well as just the straight return on, on the absolute investment in terms of, okay, I've got this much more crop for spending this much on this particular product. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it, it seems like having these, um, I'm, I'm going to keep calling them microbreweries, but having these microbreweries really opens up a lot of options for technology like that. Uh, currently with the company, how many of those do you already have in operation? And kind of what's what's the the goal as far as, um, constructing those around around your uh, customers. Yeah, well, 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 we're a young company. You know, we actually started the company as part of a holding company about three and a half years ago. We spun Locus Agricultural Solutions out as an independent company in September of 2017. Uh, so we're almost year and a half or so, uh, and we have one fully functional microbrewery in Solon, Ohio, which is near Cleveland. We're building a second one in Florida this summer. Uh, and the idea is over the next five to six years, we anticipate we'll be built anywhere from 14, 15, 16 of these. And they grow up pretty quickly. And, you know, that, the other nice thing about a modular system, you don't have to scale it. It's already been scaled. It's like a McDonald's franchise. We just stamp them out because that's the other thing investors often ask, well, how are you going to scale this? Well, we just build more of these. It's not as though we have to scale the fermentation from you know, a thousand liters to hundred thousand liters, as I talked about before, it's already scaled and they can go up in about, about four months, uh, just off the shelf. It's very simple looking, uh, off the shelf kind of materials. Uh, and it, it may cost us maybe almost, let's say almost $2 million to put one of these things up. Let's say a 9,000 square foot base. Um, and that 9,000 square feet, we can, we can produce enough material on an annual basis to treat a million acres twice. Uh, but it, but it's counterintuitive. Like I said, I've done a lot of fermentation work. 10 years ago, I would have told you this was impossible, that you can't get capital efficiency by scaling down. You always have to scale up to get capital efficiency, uh, in terms of dollars per liter of fermentation broth. Well, our scientists and, and, and fermentation experts have totally broken the back of that rule. We actually have better capital efficiency with a smaller system. It goes up fast. It's relatively low cost. I mentioned maybe about $2 million to put one of our facilities up. A, a much larger, centrally located facility might cost you tens of millions of dollars. And as a result, we can pass along those savings and efficiency to our customers as well. And it goes up very quickly and it can be put up you know, in any rural community, not just here in the U.S., but in, in rural environments and, and in another location as well. And, and when I think the benefit to those communities, all of a sudden they get some control over their supply chain as well. You know, they're not spending, you know, capital to import materials in, which, by the way, are very difficult to import in a biological because if you're in Africa, you know, it's really not going not gonna to have much potency by the time it gets there. And you're not only, you're not only 
giving them control over their own supply chain, but you're actually creating jobs, and not just jobs, but careers for people that are meaningful, uh, in which they can take pride in and, and contribute to the community in which they live and you know, stimulate other activities such as agricultural programs that, that are important that go back to that whole thing of agriculture being a pathway to peace. And you know, what we're doing, we think, helps stabilize the economy of, of rural communities, wherever they happen to be in the world. I, I read, on, I think, on your website that in in uh, a trial that you did, you're able to remove an extra 4.38 metric tons of CO2 per acre from a citrus crop. And we have done some um, episodes on this ep- on this show about climate change and how you know carbon sequestration in soils can can be kind of an answer to that. Uh, is that a significant amount? you know, enough amount of uh, CO2 where this could really be a game changer in, in terms of carbon sequestration? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, and, and number one, the, the way to think about that is the, the number is about a little under four and a half uh, tons of CO2 equivalents sequestered as carbon in the soil. So you're not, you're, you're removing it from the atmosphere, but you're sequestering it and depositing it in the soil. So let's back up from that a little bit. Um, Agricultural soils are one of the world's largest carbon sinks, uh, and they will hold a lot of carbon if you treat them right, and we'll talk about the mechanism for that in just a second. But unlike the oceans, if you're sequestering CO2 in the ocean, which also is a large carbon sink, the ocean loses a lot of its productivity, acidification, you, you, know, you read about it every day, where depositing carbon in soil is a good thing. Growers want that. You need organic matter in soil. And the mechanism by which this works it comes back to what I was talking about earlier is that, you know, that CO2 in the atmosphere is actually a food source for the plant between with, you know, photosynthesis and CO2 absorption. The plant fixes that carbon into complex carbohydrates that it uses for structural materials. But as I mentioned, it also uses it to feed the organisms that it needs. And the way the, the, the majority of the way in which that carbon is fixed and deposited in the soil isn't, the expansion of the root systems, and that's part of its structural material. But with all those beneficial organisms increasing their population density, their half-lives are fairly short. And there's actually a term called necromass. Uh, you know, dead bodies are piling up. Well, those, those dead bodies turn into soil organic matter, humic acid, and a whole variety of things, proteinaceous carbon, and any number of things. And so, as as the as the as the plant status and, and productivity increases, it's fixing more CO2. I mentioned to you that we're dramatically increasing the size of that root system, which also then feeds more organisms. And we believe the mechanism by which this is happening is that with the application of rhizolizer, uh, the plant is more robust, absorbing more CO2, secreting more, more complex carbohydrate out of its root system and building up a higher population density, which in turn builds up carbon into the soil. Uh, it's really it's a it's a beautiful system and it's you know a natural part of the system and we're also we're also working with a with a company in Australia called Soil Sequest, uh, a really cool bunch of guys. They get all excited, you know. They they say, hey mate, you know, imagine you got the world's largest carbon sink and 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 you got two billion growers, yeah, take a two billion person army and attack the world's largest carbon sink and their goal is to double the amount of sequestered carbon and agricultural soils by 2031. Well, they have a, a different type of fungi. It's called an endophytic 
melanizing fungi. And what melanin is, it's a cyclic form of carbon. It kind of looks like biochar, or little charcoal particles. Uh, that is carbon that's deposited in the soil. And they're, they're accumulating four and a half to five tons of carbon with their stuff. And they really don't know how to make it. They're a not-for-profit. And so we have formed an LOI with them, and we're working on a definitive agreement in which we're going to work together. We can make this stuff in our sleep with our modular fermentation system. We'll combine our soil amendment portfolio with theirs, and we think we can, we think we can do wonderful things, not only to, to sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but to ultimately be able to generate credits for our growers. Because that, the beautiful thing about agricultural carbon or soil carbon is the grower gets to both keep and sell the benefit. In other words, there are other companies that have committed themselves to being carbon neutral. Well, they can't do it on their own. They have to buy credits from people in the open market. Well, the growers are a great source of those credits. Agriculture is massive. And the idea of them keeping the benefit, which, which means that, look, they get the benefit of having all that extra carbon in the soil, but they can also turn around and, and sell those credits uh, in, in, a, in a beneficial way. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a remarkable system. All of a sudden, there's a new income stream for the grower that they never would have had before, which incentivizes them to practice, you know, more regenerative agriculture. And that's, that, that's the name for a lot of this that people are using is regenerative agriculture, which is a beautiful name in and of itself because it actually describes what's going on. You're regenerating these soils. And in regenerative agriculture or whether it's, you know, other companies that are using maybe seed treatments, it does seem like there is a, um, I don't know if I'd call it a trend, but there is a focus on decreasing the amount of inputs applied to to a crop in general. Uh, do you ever think, you know, a solution like this may be offered in either a genetically engineered form or, or something else? Or what makes you think that, um, you know, still having some sort of input, whether that's uh, applied to the soil through irrigation or, or just through, through I, I would imagine with the, the biochar, can't be through irrigation, it probably has to be spread. But, uh, you know, uh, is there any risk here to to people not wanting to put anything on their soil and wanting to, to farm more truly regeneratively using the, the system itself? No, I think people see this as a as a natural part of the system. We, we we work with a lot of organic growers, and they're trying to obtain ecological balance, as I mentioned before, and they see direct fed microbials as part of the system. And the system is, is, is this. It's not just us. I mean, there, there's minimum tillage, which means that you don't, like a moldboard plower, you know, back, you've probably seen fields that are totally turned over, you know, and somebody's out there plowing. Well, that's not really good for the microbial systems. What you want to do is have minimum tillage, which means that you just use a cultivator, you know, the top inch or so of the soil to help control weeds. But you leave the, the, the soil profile, the, you know, a foot and a half, two feet down intact. Uh, because what happens if you break that up, you break up all the mycelia that I talked about with these with these fungi. I don't know if you've ever, you know what a fairy ring is? I, I'm not familiar with a fairy ring. What's a fairy well, ring? Uh, well, a fairy ring, if you, if you go out to the forest or you may have seen it in the lawn, you see a circle of mushrooms. That's a fairy ring. And that's one massive organism. And those fairy rings can be, you know... Uh, a half a mile in diameter to, you know, maybe a few feet in diameter. Uh, but it's, it's, it's an indication that you have a fungal mat growing underneath the soil, and then it puts up its, its, its fruiting bodies, which are mushrooms, and you see that in an absolutely perfect ring. Well, and that fungal mat, if you go in there and you till it up, you break it up, and you destroy some of that 
environmental stability that it, that it created. The other, the other thing, not only minimum tillage, but cover crops. Cover crops are very important to this. And, and you know, people often call them green manure because they'll, they'll grow and they'll, they'll take up nutrients from the soil and then you till them back into the soil. But the other thing about a cover crop, a cover crop is there, and as we talked about earlier, that cover crop is growing, it's fixing CO2, and it's shoving complex carbohydrates out of its root system. It's feeding those microbes during the course of the winter. And the off-season, a cover crop there is literally keeping those microbes alive. Well, we're, we're kind of a force amplifier. We, we you know, direct-fed microbials, so this is what you'd call this is simply a mechanism by which you go in and, and you know you integrate with some of these other systems, but you can amplify its effect even more in terms of building up a greater microbial population in that soil. Like I said, it's, it's no different than, than taking a probiotic and why, why you should be doing that. But you mentioned genetic engineering, and so let me comment on that. And I have a little expertise here. Um, I worked for Mycogen Corporation back for 13 years in the 1990s and late 1980s. And we were the, one of the first companies to produce a gen, genetically modified corn plant. And we were, you know, as young scientists, we were thinking not of Roundup Ready, but of uh, 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 salt tolerance, uh, drought tolerance, things like that. Uh, you know, adding these microbial populations in soil is a complex set of chemistry. You know, genetic modification, maybe you can get three or four genes stacked together and do something. I mean, you're, you're not going to replicate what's going on to the plant. Uh, through any kind of genetic or genomic engineering, you've got to add these microbes because, like I said, what you've got is a very complex system with lots of lots of people participating in this party, and it's also a much more natural way of trying to ecologically rebalance these soils such that they have a full complement of chemical functionality, and that the plant has plenty of friends to interact with that help it help signal it in terms of nutrient uptake, yield, immune health, all, variety, all kinds of variety of things. That's something that has to be done by building up the right microbial population, understanding you know, the dynamics of that population as well. And in a minute, we should talk about what we're doing for that to better understand that. Yeah, why don't we talk about that as, as, as uh, we, we get ready to wrap up here. I, I uh, wanna give you a chance to talk about that and anything else we weren't able to touch on. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the other component of what we do that fits into this local optimization is, again, I try to use analogies with people, but we, we, probably not literally, but figuratively, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about soil, micro, you know, ecology. Uh, it's underground, and, and literally there are thousands of species that are down there, and it's, it's a beautifully complex system. But you can't, under the mantra of you can't optimize what you can't, measure. There is no way in which a grower can go out there and determine, okay, well, I put this product down, but, but how do I optimize its use on my field as a function of soil type or temperature or crop like we talked about before? Um, and there are some companies that are offering metagenomic packages where you actually take some soil and you send it to a lab and you, you sequence everything that's there. That's about a, you know, maybe somewhere between $150 and $250 to have that done and, and a week later or two weeks later, you get some information back. Eh, that doesn't cut it for gore. So what we have done, we have created like a little pool test kit or a pregnancy test kit, if you will, that, that is like a little strip. It's called a, a lateral flow immunoassay, and you know we can go into the mechanism. But what what it will allow the grower to do, and we'll have the, the, the prototype of this uh, about the middle of the year this year, to go ahead and take a soil sample, swirl it around in some buffer, put 
put some of that buffer on a, on a strip. And then 20 to 30 minutes later at most, he can do this in the tailgate or in his barn, take a little handheld reader and get a quantitative assessment, not qualitative, like yes, no, it's there, but quantitative, how much of it is there. Uh, and this won't cost him more, no more than about 10 bucks. Uh, so he can actually measure what's going on. It's like prescriptive uh, microbial agriculture. So we can then adopt his practices for his particular situation. And we're developing these assays, not only for our microbes and other beneficial microbes that we think are important to measure, but for various plant pathogens as well. So that a grower could go out there very early on before you could ever see the onset of the, the physical symptoms of the disease and determine that, oh my gosh, I've got Pythium or Rhizoc or something out here uh, at a stage where I need to do something. And so go, go, you know, use whatever control mechanism they want to use. But it's a, it, 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 we think it's going to be a remarkably valuable tool for growers in price, remarkably inexpensively so that they can, they can use it almost like a tic-tac, right? They just go out there statistically sample to understand, you know, that their practices are actually enriching the soil population and the microbes that are important to them, as well as taking a look at some of these diseases. Very cool. Well, Dr. Zorner, thank you so much for being on the show. This is interesting stuff. I'm excited to see this roll out and I would love to someday visit one of your, your facilities as they, as they continue to be constructed around the country. Absolutely. We'll show up in Cleveland, Ohio any day and we'll give you a tour. Great. And, and uh, where should we point people to if they want to learn more about the work you're doing? Uh, www.locusag.com. So L-O-C-U-S-A-G.com. All right. Thanks again for being on the show. Great. Thank you, Tim. I really enjoyed it. Big thank you to Dr. Paul Zorner of Locus Agricultural Solutions for being on the show and sharing with us uh, some of the exciting things they're doing in this microbial space. Hope you enjoyed that. I'm curious about your thoughts. Where do you fall on that spectrum I mentioned at the top of the show? Everywhere from this is going to displace all of chemical agriculture to this is a bunch of snake oil. I'm sure you're somewhere in between. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter at Tim Hamrich. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the show. I really, really do appreciate your time, your attention, and your interest in making the world a better place through ag innovation. We will be back next week with another episode, and I sure hope you'll join us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week.